One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Art de Rocher of The Athletic. Hands up, we've all given Ole Gunnar Solskjaer a good kick in this season. Doubts deepened when Manchester United were humiliated by Spurs. But credit where credit is due. The response from the manager and his players has been exceptional. Nothing is beyond Marcus Rashford at the moment. Off the pitch, he's a national treasure, compassionate, passionate and inspirational. On it, in his day job, he scores Champions League goals for fun. Hat-trick in 15 minutes? Why not? United found a system that suited them against Red Bull Leipzig. So, Migs, was that the most significant win of Solskjaer's managerial career? I'd probably put it second to his initial win in Paris Saint-Germain in that regard, because obviously that was the real kind of landmark, probably the result that got him this job in the first place. But this now might be one that ensures he definitively keeps it for some time. I mean, I think when we... (laughs) We've given him a lot of criticism in this podcast. I've probably given him most. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I do have to say, I mean, what he's done in this spell is usually impressive. The response to A, the 6-1 to Spurs, and then B, this appalling run of fixtures. And let's be fair, it, it looked like this could really end it. Given the form they were on, given how, how shambolic they looked against Spurs, it looked like this is going to be the negative spiral, to use that famous Andre vs Boas quote in 2012, that eventually saw him lose it. And now we're kind of about... Halfway through that run, he's stabilising the league and he is flying in the Champions League. I mean, really, they've beaten their two biggest rivals in the group, Paris Saint-Germain away, now Leipzig at home. That, that result last night, not just a win, but and not just a kind of a usually handsome win, given it was 5-0, but also there was a convincing nature. And first in the way he dealt with Leipzig from the start and also as in the PSG game with the way he responded to kind of nuances and the rhythm of the game and the way the subs worked so well for him and I actually think in some ways it was tactically more impressive than the Paris Saint-Germain game and now he just, everything look, just looks so different Yeah well I suppose in Europe they've beaten last season's finalists and the semi-finalists in the Champions League they seem to have hit on the right system don't they Ah, uh, you know, that diamond, it seems to suit Paul Pogba and Bruno Fernandes. Yeah, I think when you look at uh, the midfield options that United have, especially after their summer business bringing in Donny van der Beek, uh, when we were talking on earlier podcasts, we were kind of wondering where van der Beek would fit in if they were going to keep that midfield free. I don't think many of us thought he would just slot into that. And that w- that hasn't been the case with the... Diamond, I think there's more scope to bring bring him into the side as well as have Paul Pogba do what he did so well last night in terms of breaking from that left side of the midfield to kind of slide in passes for Mason Greenwood. It was in the first half, but of course that could be Martial and Rashford too in later games. And then you've got Bruno Fernandes as well who can fit into that. When you look at the midfield options United have, I think also that diamond can help in terms of just bringing a bit more of a shield for the United defence where they've had issues throughout the season. Of course, they've improved in recent weeks, but having shield in front of them like Matic or maybe 
Fred, who's a bit more mobile in the coming weeks, could help them push forward from what has been an encouraging couple of weeks. Yeah, talking of the last couple of weeks, there's nothing now beyond Marcus Rashford, is there, Miggs? He's had 223 games for Manchester United, 74 goals, another 11 goals for England, yet that's almost dwarfed by his social impact as well. You know, to do that, what it, you know, to, to score that hat trick, given everything that he's been through in the last sort of couple of weeks, is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and it's an incredible escalation of form. And I think there's even well, something else that's impressive about Rashford here, uh, and I don't think this should be overlooked, is that whatever about his impact on the pitch, there was a slight danger going into this season that he could have lost his place in the United side. Even when Cavani came in, it looked like, and, and given Solskjaer's clear preference for Greenwood towards the end of, of last season, it looked like one of Rashford or Martial could well miss out more regularly. And there just had been that little bit of doubt. Yeah, here we are now, and he's not just established himself as the most prominent figure, the most prominent football figure off the pitch, but now has re-established himself as United's decisive player. And now with four goals in Europe this season, it's remarkable. Yeah. And and, and testament to, to his own character in a different way to uh, his what has been such impressive work with, uh, <laughs> as the phrase goes, Rashford essentially being the leader of the opposition. <laughs> You've got, you know, also, we, you know, we're dealing with footballers as, as, you know, hugely public figures, aren't we, Art? And... Let's dwell on on Mason Greenwood, if we could. You know, there have been a few sort of mixed messages about him recently. Is he a generational talent? And I'm thinking in terms of the new or the next Rooney that really requires very careful protection by the club and his manager. I wouldn't want to throw generational out there because I think that's a word that gets overused now especially on on twitter uh, when you look at some of the debates that go on in in the kind of sphere of football we all fall into the trap mate we all fall into the trap Um, but um he is an exceptional talent and i think the way he started this season building off of last year is nothing but encouraging i know he had that little episode when england went to iceland but i think he's come out of that fine. I think Phil Foden's coming out of that fine in terms of responding with performances on the pitch. You see how Greenwood played last night and as well beforehand and you've seen how Guardiola still relies on Phil Foden really when you see him bringing him off the bench against West Ham and him ultimately having an impact on the game. In terms of Greenwood and how he's managed by the club, I think that's something that's important for all players really, not just Greenwood himself. I think there has to be a kind of care for these players not to overexpose them and have them damaged by that. I think there is sometimes a danger of throwing players in into these situations too fast and it being a bit too much for them to handle. But going off his performances on the pitch, I think just giving him more chances to to prove himself there, which he is doing extremely well. I think that that will put him in good stead to carry on impressing the way he has done so far. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know what you think, Art, but what struck me about him scoring that goal against Leipzig was just the calmness of the finishing. That was way beyond his years, wasn't it? Yeah, I think when, when most strikers or most young strikers get into that position, you might feel they're a bit tempted to just lash it into the back of the net. Whereas with him going across the keeper with a slightly more light finish, it was exactly what was needed. And I think it was something that just showed how aware he is of his surroundings when he's on the pitch and what is best suited to that specific moment in time. And that's the sort of thing that is going to set him apart from other strikers, other forwards, not just at Manchester United, but in the Premier League as well. Mm. Lest we forget... Migs, you know, football is a fashion business. Now, Julian Nagelsmann, that was his heaviest defeat as a manager. He's probably the worst dressed man in football, I would suspect, given what he was up to last night. Do you expect to see him in the Premier League soon? You know, because we had been talking about him, haven't we, as, you know, this potential successor to Solskjaer or Pep Guardiola. Do you think he will inevitably come to the Premier League? 
Oh yeah, completely. And I don't, I don't think even that we should read in. I mean, there's been a little bit of commentary since last night about you know this this sets things right that he was being he's been overpraised that Solskjaer schooled him and all this, but I think it's just one of those results that happen. I mean, it shouldn't be forgotten in all of this that ultimately Manchester United are a much much wealthier club than Leipzig, and and for all the kind of discussion about Leipzig as basically just you know and and the, and the problematic element of them being what is essentially a franchise of a, of a, a drinks brand in in terms of their actual financial power as a football club it's not that great it's one of the reasons Timo Werner left and when it, when it when it did come right down it did, and this isn't to take away from what Solskjaer did last night in the situation when it comes like right down to it last night Leipzig have a relatively thin pool of talent and quite a young pool then Manchester United are able to bring on the quality of Rashford or Bruno Fernandes. I mean, that's a significant difference. And in that sort of circumstance, managers like Nagelsmann, no matter how good they are, they will occasionally take a beating. I mean, you know, if, you, if, you, if you, Fergie, you know, the, the the greatest of all, if you want to call him that, when he was at Aberdeen in a similar situation, took a 5-0 pasting to Liverpool. I'm right, they were like, this United aren't at Liverpool. But it, it's just, it will happen. And I don't think it takes away from his overall status. I think he is still... One of, one of the brightest coaches in football with among the best ideas. That was what was particularly impressive about Solskjaer last night, that he negated what Leipzig do well, especially at that point in the game in the second half when it was 2-0 and it looked like it could just turn. But yeah, it's still it, nearly every big club should still be looking at Nagelsmann as potentially their next hire. He is that good, even if his clothes are not. Yeah, I think he needs a personal dresser, personally. But there we go. But he got, he got, he got a bit chippy about that after the game. Actually, did he? Did you see that? No, I didn't. No. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he was asked about it, and then kind of say, hey, like he, did, he, he was not in the mood for any sort of joking about his. Uh, he was told, uh, "Oh, you probably won't wear this this get up again because it's unlucky," and he was not given the interview or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, Art, Arsenal are at Old Trafford on Sunday. Obviously, a club you know well. Is it a definitive test for them, given that recent defeats have, have exposed some weaknesses? I think in terms of the magnitude of the game, it will obviously carry a lot of weight because of the fact it is Arsenal at Manchester United and they haven't won at Old Trafford since 2006, where Adebayor scored to seal the victory. And I think Arsenal have come close in recent years, but not being able to get over the line kind of just hammers home how much of a, a test it is for them to go to Old Trafford. In terms of it being a defining test, I'm not sure if that will be the case just because of the way everyone started the Premier League this season. No one's really started that well, that consistently. And I think even if they were to, to lose, they, they'd still be in with a, a chance to claw back at United, Chelsea, teams like this for the possible Champions League places, even though I think it's more likely that they'd filter into the Europa League places. In terms of the weaknesses in the team, I think the way Mikel Arteta has tried to change the shape of the team as well since the international break has maybe played into that a little bit because as we've all seen since the restart in the summer, he's been quite reliant on the back three and then changing that against Leicester. Arsenal looks good in the first half with David Luiz, who is a key man. But once he came off injured, that's when stuff started to unravel. Ultimately, they lost control of the game and Jamie Vardy popped up again at the Emirates. <laughs> so I think that is an area where he will want to improve in terms of just developing more a more confident attacking style when using a back four. But then again, I think even though United have come away with a, a great win against Leipzig, Arsenal will feel confident that they can go to Old Trafford and unsettle them the way Tottenham did and try and get at least three points from the game. Mm. There is a sense, isn't there, Migs, that, that Arsenal's defence still is that you know weakness where you know there's even talk of Mustafi getting a new contract. Arteta has come out publicly and said he regrets leaving William Saliba out of his 25, which always always struck me as a strange one, that, because, you know, how can you have a player, how can you pay £27 million for someone and then basically say, well, we're leaving him out because we don't think he's ready? Yeah, it's odd. And I think even that speaks to, I suppose, the what is it? 
transitional period at Arsenal as well. And you talk about the defence there. I, I, I agree. And I think that's one reason why Arsenal have actually looked so dull of late. I mean, they were better in the first half against Leicester. But I think one of the reasons we're not seeing them be as proactive, why they haven't kind of replaced some of the football, say, in the first game of the season against Fulham or in some sparks last season, although the Fulham game should be con- put into context today, started the season atrociously, Fulham. But I, I do think that Arteta has become usually concerned with getting the defence right and making sure the, the side is actually solid before moving on to the rest of the team. I suppose the problem for us is, and potentially for Sunday, is that it's made for some fairly dull games where uh, and and there is just that slight sense that Arsenal haven't kicked on in the in the manner you might have expected given they won the cup given the suggestion in some games of better football but i suppose it's kind of the nature of where where they were when he took over and a squad that is in flux and and again the Saliba thing points to just uh, i mean he 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 is still adjusting to what were probably a few years of Slightly disparate recruitment. Yeah. What about the midfield balance? Uh, you know, we've got Jacker, who's described as, as the great survivor of that midfield. What about also the initial impression that you've got of Thomas Partey? Yeah, I think uh, just touching on Granite Jacker quickly, I think he is key to that midfield, the way it works for uh, Mikel Arteta's vision, because even whichever system Arteta uses, Shaka is key to that. In in the back four, he's usually the man that drops in between the left back and the centre back to allow the left back to go forward a bit more and have more licence to, to attack and then also shield the defence in more of a untraditional back three. But then with Partey, I think he impressed very much on his debut in the Europa League against Rapid Vienna, where he showed exactly what Arsenal fans wanted to see. He was effective with with the ball. He was brave with his passing, firing the ball into Lacazette, even when it seemed unlikely. And then he was also aware enough in defence to fill in when there were spaces opening up. And I think that's what Arsenal fans were hoping to see from him against Leicester. Started the game okay. He was looking for the ball, he was getting it, doing more of the same. But as the game went on, Arsenal looked to Shaka a lot more. I know James McNicholas at The Athletic as well wrote a, a good piece on it where he watched Partey for the entire 90 minutes and kind of detailed exactly what was going on in that midfield. And Partey was getting understandably frustrated that he wasn't receiving the ball as much. And I think uh, when you when you buy a player like him who isn't just a man that's going to sit in front of the back four and destroy opposition attacks, I think you have to trust him a bit more with the ball because he can push Arsenal forward, not just with driving runs, but also with his passing. And I think um, as the season goes on, that's probably a side of his game that we'll see more in the Premier League as well as um, Europa League games if he plays in those. Well, let's talk if we could, uh, Migs, on Liverpool. It seems Fabinho's hamstring injury is not as serious as first feared, and he might even be back after the international break. That leaves them basically three games to negotiate. West Ham at home on Saturday, Atalanta next week away, and then Manchester City away on the 8th of November. Is this a critical test of Liverpool's solidarity and strategy and their spirit and their system? Well, it's also a bit of a test of this, what has really been, I suppose, a kind of crux of the whole Klopp model in which, I mean, if you look at the way, even the way he talks about these injuries, he doesn't really talk about them because he feels that that creates a bit of a kind of a negative vibe and doubt around the team. And obviously so much of how Klopp plays requires a 100% buy-in and thereby no doubt whatsoever. Yet that confronts the reality of (laughs) this system is very dependent on that kind of just core solidity at the back which has obviously been personified in the, over the last in, over the last few years by primarily Van Dijk and then Allison. and just having those pins there means everyone else, everyone else can surge forward in the way we see this team at their best so this could potentially compromise like we, we could really see a return to Liverpool of a kind of 2017 
especially if Ambedio's out, given that he can do some of what Van Dijk does so well. In terms of repercussions for the season, I think that would be the bigger issue, whether it, it allows any doubt to foster. Because even if they, even in, in pure results terms, like the, the mats of the campaign, if you want to call it that, if they had a bad spell over the next three days, I mean, as Art touched on there as regards Arsenal and how kind of wild this season is, I don't think it would have too much of an effect. I think this isn't a title race where you where any single result is going to be too fatal. There's going to be a lot of room for error this season. So even even if they dropped off against West Ham and City, it's recoverable, particularly for Liverpool with this attack. And also the Atalanta game isn't too much of an issue because they've won the first two games in their group and they're in a pretty comfortable position now. But really, I think the bigger consequence would be if they if they uh, lost those three games, which is which feels a bit, <laughs> feels a bit of an exaggeration given the quality of this side going forward, or if they if they were maybe that bit unconvincing or lost the city, that it could foster that doubt that Klopp doesn't really need at this moment. Given because I mean that this is one thing about this period as well, and why say the one 0 win over Ajax. And then the recovery against Sheffield United at the weekend were so important because it did feel there was that, I don't want to say hysteria, but there was almost that kind of frenzy around the Van Dijk injury. And that, that feeling that had a few more little things gone wrong, it could have created a bit of a chain reaction. And I think that that's maybe something that Klopp will be more mindful of than anything, anything else. I don't think that the three games in and of themselves are that crucial, but it's more about the atmosphere in the team after it and how much they can dig in. Because what makes it so fascinating, Art, is that, you know, we're in an age now of, of deep and ready-made squads, long-term recruitment, yet Klopp here is facing, you know, a really old-school challenge of managing on the hoof. He's got to find out what his best options are for these three games at least. You know, does he bring Jordan Henderson into the back four, he knows the system. He's played alongside uh, Van Dyke in the World Cup final. Uh, Andy Robertson's played on the left of a three. Then he's got three or four, you know, younger players coming through. Will we see a different dimension to Klopp? Do you think in in the next sort of couple of weeks? I think there's scope for it because the way he streamlines that Liverpool defence, you can't really rely on. Of course, you can rely on these players, but especially after the summer that they've had, really condensed pre-season and then straight back into the action, even earlier for them because they played in the community shield. I think injuries were going to happen. And of course, Van Dyke's injury wasn't expected. It was more of a, a contact injury with Jordan Pickford. But when you look at the planning, I think that is possibly a case there could have been improvement for. In terms of what happens now, I think... The way Liverpool have set up in terms of a very clear way of playing, that will help decide who comes in for Van Dijk. Obviously, there's Gomez and Matip who will be main options as uh, central defenders. And of course, you've got Phillips as well, who's playing in the Champions League. But uh, with these games coming so quick between each other before the international break, if there is rotation, it's going to be completely understandable. And with Henderson, I think... Although everyone knows he's a midfielder by trade, if he is at centre-back for a game, I don't think many people would raise their eyebrows at that. And even though he is a player that you're going to expect to be more pressing in terms of a midfield role, I think he will have the discipline to fulfil that role as best as he can. With uh, Robertson, playing as left-sided centre-back in the back three for Scotland. That's something that Kieran Tierney has done as well for Scotland. And since coming to Arsenal under Arteta, he's performed extremely well as a left-sided centre-back in the back three. But again, with Klopp, I'm not sure if he will want to just switch shapes for a couple of games and kind of create even more chaos where there shouldn't be. So I think this kind of couple of weeks before Fabinho's back is going to be kind of really interesting time to see how Klopp adjusts to the situation and I think it's going to only prove his worth to Liverpool even more if he comes through it well. Yeah well I suppose his choices you know also include you know, people like Reese Williams who looks assured but you know let's not forget he started this year in non-league Nat Phillips, as you, as you mentioned there, are 
very promising, recently injured. You know, my information is they were ready to sell him for £5 million a couple of weeks ago. Migs, you know, again, we go back to the fashion business element of football. Hmm. When people were talking about potential recruitment uh, by Liverpool in January of a centre-back, the name Dayo Upamecano was at the forefront of, of speculation. Yet he was taken to school at Old Trafford, wasn't he? Yeah, and it's the first time I think we've really seen him look that vulnerable. And I think that's interesting in in terms of kind of, I suppose, the trajectory of centre-halves, and I try more so the trajectory of the position, in that from the way people spoke about him, and, the, and, I, and by, in, this, in, in this case, I mean the way kind of people in recruitment spoke about him, and the way like a lot of you know top figures in football, he was seen as a rare player like Van Dijk, who could look like a traditional commanding centre-half in the modern era, where I think it's almost impossible to look like a commanding centre-half. Because I think... It's 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 a position now with arguably more demands on it than any other on the pitch, bar possibly fullback, because if if you if you look at a modern like compare a modern centre half to something say fifteen years ago even when say what Cannavaro in the two thousand six World Cup, which may be kind of one of the, one of the best recent examples of a completely domin- domineering defender in that way, defender at that point usually had he was able to sit much deeper, he had his fullbacks very close to him and not halfway up the pitch. And often one, if not two, shielding midfielders in front of him, and he wasn't tasked with starting moves or kind of press coming from everywhere and putting them all under all sorts of pressure. So I mean, it was—I'm not going to say a more comfortable position. Obviously, it involved huge defiance and you know quality, but it was more about pure defending, and it was easier to concentrate on that. Whereas now, if you're one of the top teams, and especially if you're playing play an approach like Leipzig do or Liverpool do, a centre half has to start moves, has to face all this sort of pressure, has his full backs often sixty yards up the pitch and a lot of movement in front of him, has pressure coming all over him, and then of course has to do the basics of defending and suddenly switch. And you talk to coaches and they speak about how one of the issues for centre half as well is the specialist traits, the position, or the specialist traditionalist traits of the position, they don't get to concentrate on them as much because they've got to ultimately learn, I suppose, a lot of midfield skills and, you know, pure technical ability. And that does kind of, you know, constrained time devoted to those traditional qualities. So it is a different role. But as you say, Upe Magano had looked like someone that he could convince in that traditional way despite this system. Whereas this is the first time we've seen him really exposed in that manner and especially given the game it was in but as with as with Nagelsmann I don't really really think it takes too much away from him I mean it's, it's similar with Van Dijk if you want to uh, make the comparison between them that way I mean given how commanding uh, Van Dijk has been in Liverpool it's easy to forget there were some games at Southampton where you know he, he, he could look a bit shaky as well but ultimately we all knew what his true quality was uh, and I think it, it, the same, it's, it's the same here but just touching on a point you made there about the squad depth, I, I think this is a really interesting season in this regard and potentially a depressing one because, I mean, we've discussed this podcast before in terms of how, like, you know, the, the, and, you know it's such a live issue in football at the moment with Project Big Picture and all this going on in the background. There, there has been a hugely ominous financial disparity in the game and you can look across so many of the leagues you know, Bayern Munich, Juventus, Paris Saint-Germain, even in England where the the big six or the wealthiest clubs win, win the majority of their games, the, the other 14 take fewer points off them. And in the last few seasons, we've had these kind of almost ridiculous 90-plus point seasons. Now, again, that's, that's pretty much completely down to financial disparity. COVID, one thing it has done in that regard, for all the horror of it, it's been this great disruptor and has as you say, challenged the kind of notion of these deep, deep squads that these clubs have and created what we hope is an open season. And it, and it's almost been a test to this, though. But wouldn't it be depressing if in all this disruption, it just ended up with the richest teams winning again? And I, I think that's what's really interesting about this campaign. Will, will, will that kind of model we've seen for the last few years withstand this great disruption? And I suppose the hope is that it, that, that it's more open and, and that this kind of the surprise of this season continue. 
Yeah, are we? Are do you think? Are we seeing the subtle evolution of Manchester City art? You know, I mentioned that because five players under twenty five started that win at Marseille. You know, okay, there'll probably be changes for the game at um, Sheffield United on Saturday. Is that, as I said, a subtle change in strategy, or is it a sign of the broader strain on squads these days? And this is a season that will give chances to a new generation, Phil Foden, Ferran Torres, for instance. Yeah, I think with that, you're, you're, when you look at Guardiola's spell at Manchester City's, what, four years into his reign now, and you're going to have to have an element of succession planning. So I think these chances for young players like Foden and Torres, and then you even look at uh, Nathan Ake coming into the side, of course, he's a bit older, a bit more experienced with uh, Bournemouth, but I think there was always going to have to be a time to blood in these youngsters. And now is really as good a time as any to get them in and have them truly influencing games. I think if you see the way their season has gone, it may not have gone as planned, but you've got Raheem Sterling as club captain, maybe in more recent games, not something you would have seen last season when David Silva was at the club, when Aguero is much more of a prevalent figure in the team. And I think when you look at the bare bones of Manchester City, Guardiola is going to have to evolve and his team is going to evolve with him if he wants to continue this project to a position where they can challenge to win the Champions League for once since he arrived. And I think having that depth is going to help them. Of course, with um, an academy as well that is as strong as Manchester City's, they're going to have players that they can call upon if needed. And I think the way that their season has gone, maybe not, may not be what uh, most of it would have expected, but is something that could maybe be more of a long-term strategy than for the short term. Yeah, do you feel, Migs, as probably I do, that there's almost a now-or-never feel for this particular group at City? You know, I'm thinking, you know, Aguero, there are signs of, of vulnerability. You've got Gundogan and Bernardo Silva declining forces in midfield. There's a sense that the clock is ticking. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think we're already into the stage where you could argue that the great team of 2017 to 19 is actually finished. Because not 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 finished in terms of that these players are done. More so, too many of its key players have either moved on or no no longer quite have the status they did. And I mean, like I mean, if you talk about a team as defined by its core 11 playing kind of more often than not. We don't really have that at City now. I think that we've we've moved on to another era where, you know, a few of those players still there in the, in the same status, the chief among them being obviously De Bruyne and Sterling. But Aguero is obviously kind of, he's 33 now, he's in and out that bit more. The defence is unrecognisable almost from what it was with Kyle Walker, almost one of the few stalwarts. And yeah, I think... Maybe the clock is running for for some of those players while while they're at the absolute peak, as Guardiola and the club try to kind of reintroduce a new. Well, they they, they try and basically create that Ferguson style succession, and I, and it should be actually acknowledged. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how this is the first time that Guardiola has ever spent more more than four seasons at a club, and whenever about the challenge of that, what's actually been extremely rare in English football is a manager doing it with one team at a club and then going and doing it again. And the only two that have ever done that are Ferguson and Wenger. Yeah, interesting. You know, we we look at Chelsea through the prism of Frank Lampard's status and potential. What did you make of his comments about British coaches deserving more respect? Was there an element of self-protection in that or was he making a, a valid broader point to be fair to Lampard I think he in that situation he was asked a question and when, when, I think when you see it in context in context it doesn't look as bad as the initial headlines made out I mean the initial headlines it was impossible my immediate reaction when I saw the headline was hang, hang on here Frank if, if, if anyone's had, is treated differently here it's probably you because there's no manager in the Premier League that has a, as many ex-teammates in the media 
and or as many people that personally know him. And just by just by the nature of these things, it means they won't get criticised as much. So I think he's largely benefited from that. But, but when you actually see his you see his point in context, it's more nuanced, and there's a bit more fairness. I I, I would say about it. Yeah, you know, I would look at you know someone like Sean Dyche and say, yes, he does deserve more credit. And obviously his Burn- Burnley team and Turf more are possibly one of the last things that Chelsea need after a long trip back from Russia. In that case, Art, they were really efficient there, weren't they? What did we see about an emerging Chelsea in Krasnodar? When you look at what Chelsea did there, it was probably what was expected, even though... Um, other teams may not go there and win 4-0. I think the way they performed was very professional and the players that got chances like uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi and Hakim Ziyech impressed and I think that's only going to be positive for Frank Lampard going forward because with all the fixtures that are going to come up after the November international break in particular, he's going to need to call upon these players and and have them at a consistent level where they can deliver for him. And when with other things, I feel getting that first win is going to be just as important so that they can have more room to rotate as the group stage goes further on. And I feel with Ziek in particular, he looked very sharp. I feel him getting minutes there can can be great in terms of just getting that consistency in his rhythm to finally be introduced in the Premier League where Chelsea may be able to come more consistent with him uh, drifting in off that right side, being able to, yes, be a goal threat, but also look for his teammates where they may not have had that option beforehand with him coming back from that injury. And I feel just setting that statement of intent in, in the group stages this early is going to be um, a very promising thing for Chelsea going forward. Yeah, when you look at it, 13 different scorers this season. Do we read anything into that? But also, while we're on a statistical theme, and this is a hat tip to Rich Jolly, who came out with the the line that Maundy has as many clean sheets this month as Kepper has managed since January the 12th. You know, in the overall evolution of this team one how different uh, how important is is Maundy as a goalkeeper of providing reassurance and secondly how critical is it that Lampard has a number of attacking options that he needs to refine as the season develops so from the uh, goalkeeping aspect I think just having someone who commands respect from the defense is as important as him being able to do the job well himself. I feel the way he's come into the Chelsea side, he's done exactly what everybody would have wanted in terms of being consistent in his performances, but also just being that figure that they can trust. I feel when you look at his decision-making, that's probably one of the, the things that Chelsea fans were hoping for most, and they've got that. Yes, he had that little bit of a, a scare at Old Trafford with that back pass. But I think when you look at the grand scheme of things, that's something that's going to happen with goalkeepers when the, they have the current demands that are on them in terms of being able to play out from the back. I think those little things are going to crop up every now and again. But on the whole, his distribution is something that Chelsea have have benefited from and um, are going to as the season progresses. Of course, he's going to concede at some point, <laughs> but the foundations he's laid are very promising going forward in terms of the attacking sense. I feel, I think what Frank Lampard's job is now is to figure out what is the best attacking quartet, maybe you can call it, to really push the side forward in the Premier League and then find out who are the players who are more of uh, deputies who can do the job in the Champions League and push those players to improve even more. You've seen the way Timo Werner's been used more off the left earlier in the season. Maybe that can change now in terms of Ziyech coming in and having another dimension off the right, which can open things up for Frank Lampard in in an attacking sense. But yeah, I think the way Chelsea went about their business in the summer probably meant that there was going to be a period where it was going to be difficult to fit all of these players in and just find where they suit each other best as well as 
themselves. And I think that's something that uh, Frank Lampard will find over the coming weeks with more players available to him. Yeah. One thing that um, I'd like to just dwell upon a little bit, uh, Miguel, is, is Leeds. Now, they're at home to Leicester on Monday. If they win that, we'll all be talking about them as potentially qualifying for Europe. I just want to concentrate on the case of Patrick Bamford. Is he a classic Bielsa player who's been made better on the training ground? Yeah, I think completely. And and also, I, I think this is a classic thing with the modern game as well, in that it's actually harder to separate... In I mean, if you, if you think about it, like, especially does does his grow up and kind of doing ratings for newspapers and all that sort of thing. You know, twenty years ago in the classic world of four four two and players knowing what were kind of traditional jobs, it was very it was very easy to say you know to separate a player from his team and say how they how they were performing and how good they were. Say it was kind of more standard. Whereas now, given how how much more tactically sophisticated the game is, how much more fluid the game is. And how players how have, I mean, you 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 know, if you were looking at it from that vantage of kind of the traditional four four two and what you would expect the player to do, we would have certain expectations. But players now have such specific tactical instructions that even if it looks from the outside, they're not doing their job. A manager could be delighted because they're doing exactly what they want, and they're doing even if it doesn't make sense to us. And I, I, talking to someone from Leipzig this week in, in the in the build up to the game, you know, and he, the way he put it, some modern instructions actually demand the players look like fools temporarily because of what what the system does. And so my point here with Banford is that a player can now look, regardless of their individual quality a player can look completely different or offer a completely different perception depending on the system he's in. And, and, and a system can really alter the outlook of a player's career in that way. And I think, that's, I think he's completely a case in that, in that in so many ways, but, you know, encouragement on the training grounds. I mean, there's that famous uh, little clip of when uh, Bamford scored a volley of training and Bielsa, you know, almost breaking from the public image we have of him, kind of, kind of mumbling with his head down, you know, running towards um, Bamford rapturously and giving him a massive, a massive bear hug. But also then the kind of the system that he puts him in and what he demands of him tactically, it's had this, you know, pronounced effect on Bamford's form and his impact. Yeah, management is or coaching is a very complicated process, very multi-layered. Oh, I'd just like to look at, at West Brom as well. They're at Fulham in that early uh, Monday slot. Are they in danger of a bit of self-inflicted damage here? Slaven Bilic was quite outspoken on the sale of uh, Higazi. You know, he said basically the club broke assurances they wouldn't sell the player. He can be headstrong. We're not looking at potentially the first managerial change of the season, are we? It's a difficult decision to take because, of course, the way how outspoken he was, it doesn't fill you with confidence in him, I don't think, because you don't really expect your manager to come out against the club like that. That being said, I think they've chosen him. They should trust him for at least, well, longer than two two months, in, not even two months into the season. Of course, we've seen uh, clubs change much quicker than that. I think Frank De Boer is probably the, the best example for, at Crystal Palace a few seasons back. But Bilic has proven over the past decade that he can manage in the Premier League, that he is a manager to respect. And I think even though there is a little episode there with the whole uh, sale. I think maybe pushing him out the door is a step too far. When you look at West Brom, you look at the way Darren Moore performed when he was given the chance there and then they got rid of him and everybody on the outside anyway was very surprised with his dismissal. And I think if they were to do the same with uh, Bilic, you just get put in that cycle again. Uh, and that's not something any club would want, I don't think. Just going in that merry-go-round of having a manager impress, like Bilic did last season in the championship, and then dismissing him and trying to find uh, that initial bounce again. So I think it's not a decision that should be taken in like any sort of haste. And that even though Bilic, especially since he's been in the Premier League, he's he's proven that he isn't going to hide his feelings he isn't going to just sit back and accept whatever happens to him he's going to speak out on these things I don't think it's 
anything out of character really for him. And it's something that West Brom should just accept because they don't want to find themselves in that situation where they're a team who is already not uh, expected to be in mid-table, etc. Not putting themselves in a situation where they can derail things is probably more important than Bilic expressing his feelings on a certain <laughs> a certain sale. Mm. Speaking of derailing things, Migs, what about you know the the broader picture? You know, it's it's a mess at the moment, isn't it? There's no surprise to learn that the top six were acting secretly in concert. You've got probably just as little surprise that Greg Clark, the FA chairman, his involvement was a little deeper and probably more damaging than he let on. Then you've got the Super League announcement, in inverted commas, at Barcelona with the president, the parting president, basically delivering a political parting shot. Um, what do you make of the the bigger landscape at the moment? Football is really kind of... It's almost on the edge of a huge fissure at the moment. A lot of people spoke of COVID being the opportunity for a reset that is very much an ongoing process. And I think a huge problem is we have so many different parties, so many different interests that it's impossible for any reset to actually happen because the game requires much more consensus. I think a problem is that COVID could expose all these problems, but we don't really have potential solutions. And I mean, I think... The fundamental of all this is, uh, and even what like a, a driving issue or a driving problem like financial disparity comes from, because it is, it is financial disparity that really causes this huge problem in the game. And, and in England, that financial disparity, and it is beginning to have an effect in the rest of Europe as well, but it primarily comes from broadcasting revenue and the the the, the way it's distributed. And then also, of course, the the global clubs that the kind of the top clubs have become but all of this basically comes from the fundamental problem that football is a business with all the you know with all the business requirements like essentially i mean business is ultimately about killing your competition to degree and and you know business success now but that is offset that the fundamental of sport is about competitive balance so it's on one side you've got something where you want to kill business. On the other side, or sorry, kill competition. On the other side, you have a situation where every year you have to re- revive that competition for for the health of the sport as a whole. And it, it feels like football football has never quite solved this contrast or this what is it almost this kind of paradox or dilemma. And it's led to this growth of problems and this growth of a gap at all levels. And all these issues now where we have so many different invested parties, you know, everyone looking for their own piece of leverage. And it doesn't really look like it's going to get solved anytime soon, despite all these grand plans. I mean, I have to say the Super League, the Super League stuff, I, I take that with a pinch. I'm, 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 to be honest, I'm almost dismissive of it right now. The, the leaking of, of, of it initially felt almost opportunistic. It was interesting that he, despite Bart, Bartomeu's comments on, on Monday or Tuesday, whatever that was, even FIFA kind of dismissed it. it. It felt bizarre, but but I mean, that's almost in keeping with Bartomeu's reign at Barcelona. And I, I wouldn't put too much stock in that at the moment, but it feels like we're going to be in a, in a, in a, in a state of uncertainty in football for some time. And it could take a, a quite a while for all this to settle down. Taking everything that, that Mig said there, Art. We had Arsene Wenger coming out this week and saying that the Super League or a European Super League would destroy the Premier League. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think if you're going to take teams out of any league, so it wouldn't just be the Premier League, it would be leagues like La Liga, Serie A, Ligue 1 in France. Taking teams out of any league is going to be detrimental, even if it is to possibly create a as they call it, Super League. Uh, when when Mikel Arteta was, it wasn't a direct question about it, but he was asked about the strength of the Premier League yesterday in his press conference for tonight against Dundalk. And he said that in the past eight to 10 months, he's seen the Premier League grow in strength more than uh, ever before. And I think he wouldn't just come out and say that. He, he is a, a manager who, although he is very young, only 10 months in the job, 
he has spoken very much with honesty when when he's been given the chance. And I think he wouldn't just come out and say that in a blasé kind of attitude. I think the way the Premier League has started this season especially has been kind of what, maybe not what everybody would have wanted, but in terms of just a, a general view, having it a lot more balanced and that competition, as Miguel touched on, that competition does feel like it's back. And I think having that in the Premier League at, at this stage more than ever after the dominance of Liverpool and Manchester City in the last couple of years is is as important to keeping that strength uh, improving and hopefully not not going down the route of the European Super League. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll draw it all together if I may. Now, Art has a, a far better handle on what's going on at Arsenal than me uh, and most people, to be honest. To an external observer, the Meza Ozil situation seems a mutually damaging mess. But with so much bad news around, I want to end on a positive note. Let's dwell on Meza Ozil the person rather than Meza Ozil the player. You know, you can doubt his temperament or his talent all you like, but you can never deny his humanity. He's providing 1,400 meals a day at 11 schools in the North London area during a half-term break. He's been funding food for charities and homeless shelters since the lockdown began in March. Cynics will say he can afford it, being paid about £1.4 million a month to do very little. I say to them, give it a rest. We should celebrate our footballers for acting on their social consciences. In the meantime, thanks to Miguel and Art and to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.